You are listening to the Security Roundtable for May 3rd, 2007. So I think Apple's absolutely doing the right thing by not putting a lot of emphasis on security. For the time being, they're taking a page out of the Microsoft 2001 playbook by basically going the deny, deny, deny route. Does it enforce the PCI data standards? Does this council just meet and recommend changes to the guidelines? Uh, is the council used by companies? I mean, I, it doesn't seem to me that to have any uh, enforcement power behind it. PCI isn't a government standard, doesn't have that kind of teeth. It's an industry standard. So it's not like if people don't comply, it's not like there's going to be folks going to jail. First of all, if you look at Google Earth, how often, you know, if you go over sites that you know of, is it ever fu fully up to date? No. Welcome to the program. I'm Rob Westervelt, and with me is senior news writer Bill Brenner and site editor Eric Parizzo. In this edition, we'll talk about a few of the latest issues to flow through the newsroom. First, we'll talk about, for all you Mac fans out there, Apple Mac hacks. Are hackers being fair to Apple? And why are Apple geeks so defensive? Next, the PCI DSS rules. Should the rules be eased to allow more companies to comply? And finally, Bill Brenner will lead the discussion about some of the furor over Google hacking. Is it as dangerous as some experts have warned, or is it being overhyped? All right, Mac hacks. Well, we saw the first malware appearances targeting Macs in 2006. Uh, in that same year, a controversial black hat demo took place where two security researchers, David Maynor and Johnny Cash Elsh, used a MacBook to demonstrate a wireless driver weakness. And I think there was a, an even more recent phenomenon. And then, Bill, you can explain what that is and... Yeah, there, there was a hacking contest at the recent ConSec West conference. And one of the big contests was to take over a Mac. And a researcher managed to do so, and he managed to collect $10,000 as a prize. Um, and um, the, the, the most interesting part of this story for me, it, it's this recurring theme that... that uh, Whenever somebody compromises security of, of an Apple device, there tends to be what is perceived as a lot of defensiveness among the Mac community and a lot of conspiracy theories and what have you. And, and uh, to me, this is just um, an interesting tale of, you know, who's more secure, Windows or Apple? And... How do the how do users of both tend to react to perceived insecurities? I'm in not sure why they're so defensive. I mean, it, you see uh, all the flaws come out on XP and in all of Microsoft's various products. Every now and then, somebody picks on Mac, and uh, the Mac crowd goes nuts. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here because personally, I think Windows is you know Microsoft products are absolutely totally more secure than Apple. I mean, I don't think there's any question because Microsoft actually pays attention to security. Apple doesn't care. Microsoft, I mean, let's go back in time here. Microsoft in 2002, that's five years ago, by the way, 2002 launched its trustworthy computing program. And that basically changed the entire company culture at Microsoft and geared things toward making their products secure. Now, looking at things today, are, is Microsoft pro 
software totally secure? Of course not. It never will be. But when you look at the patch process, um, at the efforts that uh, they've made recently by hiring uh, Vinny Galato away from McAfee to start their whole AV research branch, I mean, I don't think there's any question that Microsoft is absolutely more secure than Apple. <laughs> you are yeah. so screwed. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get so much hate mail now. I don't think there's absolutely any way you can even argue this point. But I'm here's here's my other point, though. Apple is absolutely doing the right thing by ignoring security. And let me tell you why. Apple right now is all about um, cashing in on the iPod. And right now, people are, are buying their products because they're trendy. They're, you know, they, they fill a need. Uh, people enjoy using them. Security isn't even a concern. It's not like there are, uh, are a whole bunch of uh, enterprise Apple devices out there that are insecure and are at risk, as, the, as is the case with Microsoft. So I think Apple's do absolutely doing the right thing by not putting a lot of emphasis on security. For the time being, they're taking a page out of the Microsoft 2001 playbook by basically going the deny, deny, deny route. And at some point, if it actually costs them some money, then maybe they should change the strategy. But until then, I say let it ride. Well, how well did that work for Microsoft, though? I mean... Hey, for a long time, it worked great. I mean, at a, at a point where they needed they to change the strategy, backlash. they did. And now... Now they're seen as much more secure. Microsoft only needed to change its strategy when people stopped buying Microsoft products because they thought they were insecure. Yeah. And that, hence, cost Microsoft money. Now, I totally agree with you that at this point, Microsoft is more secure just because they are so focused on security. And if anything, they're, they're making a business out of it now. And a lot of security vendors absolutely hate that. Uh, but is Apple doing the right thing by downplaying the security? That I don't agree so much with because I think one thing that I've seen in, in covering security is that when the bad guys see a vendor downplaying their security weaknesses, it tends to make them more determined to punch through those weaknesses and, and just to show that they can. And I think that's why you have these conference, these contests like you had at Consec West where it's, you know, let's, let's hack a Mac because there is this growing perception in the hacker community that, that uh, Apple is being smug about it. You know, they have their commercials, the hi, I'm a PC, hi, I'm a Mac. And I enjoy these commercials, but there's one that where, where the Mac the guy who represents the Mac is like, ah, oh, you know, I don't have any viruses as PC guy is sneezing and coughing. And I think right now they don't see big attacks because there's the bad guys still see the most money to be made on the Windows side. But sooner or later, they're going to start having a bigger reason to <laughs> attack the Mac. And I think that, you know, just the, just as companies need to be out ahead of future threats like, you know, that can come by way of Google. You have to be out front of threats that can come by way of Mac, and I don't think they're there yet. Maybe maybe not, though. Maybe not, because perhaps it's just never going to be lucrative enough to attack the Mac. That's exactly right. Apple's never going to have to worry until it, for, you know, if five years from now, the market changes and, you know, for some reason, Windows goes by the wayside and, and the Mac OS becomes the dominant client operating system, then the tables are going to be turned. 
obviously hackers are going to have a much more, uh, much many more reasons to uh, exploit the the Apple operating system and other Apple so- Apple software. But until then, it, it it's not going to matter. And just to clarify my earlier point, it's not a great security strategy for Apple to do this, but it's a great business strategy. You know, yeah. largely ignore security from a practical standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, play off the perception that you are more secure than Microsoft. And it seems to be working, so why not yeah, keep it up? You know, it's think, all about Linux. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, is it smarter business sense? Yeah, but I don't think that necessarily makes it right. And you talked about cashing in on the iPod, and, you know, we've had a couple of stories about some malware that's made it onto iPods. And I think that the particular malware that's been written about is pretty low-key stuff, but it, you know, it shows that we're at the beginning of, um, you know, the, the digital underground is starting to tinker around to see what they can do. And there are a lot of people who, you know, bring their iPods to work or plug their iPods into work machinery. And I think that that opens up a potential door for more security trouble later on. Maybe not maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but in the next few years, I think it's a bit Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday? I don't know about that. See, I don't see the iPod as anything more than just another, you know, USB device, if you will. And let's yeah. face it, it's not that difficult to make sure that you're protected from USB-style threats. There are some businesses that are uh, banning the iPod, though, aren't there? I think, think, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. The federal government I mean, doesn't allow uh, the iPod into into some of its offices. And I mean, let's face it. The bottom line is, like anything else, the iPod is a threat vector. So if you want to eliminate all threat vectors, then, you know, the iPod would be part of that category. But by and large, when you're talking about um, the, the list of serious security threats to enterprise client devices at this point in time, and networks for that matter, you gotta cons- gotta think the iPod is pretty far down on that list. Okay, well, PCI DSS, and that's the payment card industry's way to get businesses to secure customer credit card data. Now, I was at a uh, PCI DSS conference last month in New York City, and Phil Mellinger, he is the uh, first data CISO, was one of the speakers at the conference, and he turned some heads when he said that he would like to see the PCI DSS standards relaxed to allow more companies to comply and then gradually increase the standards. Some folks are completely against it. They think that uh, the standards should say as high as they are. I know there are 12 rules that need to be met. And then others think it's a good idea because they think that if more companies comply, then the PCI DSS will be bolstered in the in the community. In other words, right now, Phil Mellinger said that banks don't even look at the PCI DSS report when they come in to do their own audits. And they're actually sending people out to do their own audits rather than following the PCI DSS standards. Bill, you've been following this. I think he makes a good point that a lot of companies are struggling to be compliant and that the bar is set pretty high. But I've, I've interviewed a lot of IT professionals and PCI auditors, and I, you know, I don't ever hear anybody say we should dumb this down just so there'll be more compliance. What I tend to hear a lot of, and I think I would tend to agree, is that 
you can be compliant but not necessarily secure. And I think that, you know, while there are some who are going to struggle with this, I think the longer we have the standard on the books, um, the further along we get, I think more and more companies are going to have an easier time of it. But we're at the beginning, and I'm not so sure we should be throwing in the towel on the details right now. Bill, I'm actually going to argue the other side of the coin with you here because I feel like Mellinger coming out and actually being the one to to talk about some of this, I think it gives it a lot more credibility. Um, I, I think you have to consider the possibility of toning it down right now simply because PCI isn't a it isn't a, a government standard it doesn't have that kind of teeth it's an industry standard so it's not like if people don't comply it's not like there's going to be folks going to jail so I think you also have to think about if nobody understands the guideline um, no one's going to comply with it and if no one complies with the guideline then Obviously, it's not going to have that much merit because it's going to have no credibility in the, in the industry. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's definitely a valid idea, and I think it's only a matter of um, figuring out how to do it. There's definitely an argument to be made that for a lot of, especially the smaller organizations, uh, they need help having this better explained as far as what specifically you should be doing for a company of your size, whatever that size is. But, you know, when you see things like what happened with TJX, where they were clearly violating some of the basics of, of the standard, you know, the, the stakes are pretty high for anyone who does business online with a credit card. And I think that the standards need to be tough, even if it's a little tougher than some people feel they can handle. At right the same now. time, though, I mean, P TJX, it, it's not really a great example, I feel like, because TJX is a pretty good-sized company, and there's certainly no reason why um, it shouldn't have been uh, complying with the standard and, and uh, hence, in a, you know, in a, been in a position where um, the data breach never should happen. But another point to make is that um, PCI is, is still incredibly complex. I mean, we had a recent webcast with uh, PCI expert Roger Nebel, and in the webcast, he makes it clear right off the bat that it's an incredibly complex guideline to try to be compliant with. Um, if you drill deep down into it, everything from firewalls, you know, everything from firewall, putting a firewall between uh, internal network zones to um, implementing stateful and inspection, and there's some pretty detailed things in there that, that SMBs in particular are, are going to struggle with. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's something that has to be taken into consideration. I'm not, you know, and, and in some cases it can even require a, a pretty detailed network overhaul, and that's not necessarily something that's, that's cost efficient for a lot of companies. They have this uh, Security Standards Council. Part of the role is to periodically go back and see how they can streamline and uh shauna pitt mm -hmm. this council that they that she leads does it have any authority whatsoever i mean what it, it obviously does not what is, does it enforce the pci data standards does this council just meet and and uh, recommend changes to the guidelines uh, is the council used by companies i mean it doesn't seem to me that to have any any major uh, uh enforcement power behind it 
Yeah, and I would have to go back and check that. Um, don't take this as gospel, but my understanding of it is that they were set up to be a governing body to not only flesh out the details of future versions of the standard, but also to help set down the process of... And if nothing else, we can only hope that the council is going to come up with maybe not even a, a, a new set of guidelines, but a, perhaps a better way to interpret the guidelines, because it seems like one of the, the key points of contention is, um, you know, taking a look at, at, you know, any guideline in particular and, and you know, company A getting one interpretation and company B getting another one. So any kind of clarity in terms of um, interpretation would certainly be helpful as well. That's right. I mean, I, I talked to some auditors that said exactly that, that uh, one auditor will walk into a firm and, and, and give one interpretation of the rules, and another auditor will walk into the same firm and say, oh, you're all compliant. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole, that's another can of worms altogether, because there, there is the case that you're, when you're dealing with an auditor, you're dealing with auditors that have different, don't always have the same mm -hmm. viewpoint, and they're not always looking at the same things, and does this need to be easier? I'm still not so sure. Does it need to be clearer? Yeah, I would say that it does. And I think that, and I wasn't in the room when Mellinger was talking, but I, my sense is that that's the thing he's really looking for more than, um, I just think people shouldn't get under the impression that the answer is to dumb it down because it's hard. For, for people that don't know, first data is one of the uh, largest, if not the largest, uh, credit card processing firms in the world mm -hmm. and um, you can you can definitely just being in the room with Phil Mellinger when he was talking to the entire uh, uh, audience there he you could feel his pain I mean he they're going through millions of dollars in security upgrades and now they're having trouble with one of the uh, one of a, a certain sentence or a phrase within the PCI security standards uh, that says something to the effect that everybody they do business with must also comply to these to these standards. Well, if that's the case, they're going to have a lot of trouble because they they deal with probably thousands upon thousands of different merchants out there that processing credit card transactions. So. Right, and that goes back to my initial point, Rob, which is that if the fa basically one of the fathers of the PCI standard is coming out and, and saying this and recognizing the difficulty that his organization is having in complying with it, then I'm, I'm pretty confident that it's likely a, a microcosm of what the industry at large is going through. And, and hence, you know, it, when, when an entire industry is, is struggling like that, it's, it's, not, it's not time to say, you know, you know, man up and, you know, get yourself in compliance. It's time to say, okay, is this guideline a little bit too stringent? What, you didn't you, uh, Bill, in interview that uh, the head of the council, the PCI DSS council? Yes, Shauna Pitt. And what, what's your takeaway from that? I mean, what did you think of the of what they were saying? And my my takeaway is that she's somebody who understands that a lot of companies are looking for more clarity, um, and so the issue for them is going to be. You know, do we make it? Do we make these guidelines clearer? Is it the issue that they're not explained well, or is it that they are on the surface too hard? All right. With that, uh, we're going to move on to Google hacking. 
Some security researchers have shown that hackers may be able to use Google's search tools to unearth sensitive company data. And if a company is not careful, a Google crawler can make its way into company systems and make certain data publicly available. I think there's been a few cases of that publicized. There's also been an issue with uh, Google Code Search. Uh, some people have been able to, to use Google Code Search, I guess, and come up with some ways into software, been able to find vulnerabilities into specific software. Bill, now you've been following this. Is Google really dangerous, or is uh, are people making way too much of this? Well, I, I think there is an argument to be made that there's a little bit of hyperbole here. There, I think there is a genuine threat that if you are a malicious person and you want to find out some info badly enough, um, you can find 14 different ways to twist Google to your purposes. But I've all, you know, in covering this, I've interviewed some people who are pretty skeptical of this. And in fact, after the first story, um, a few people were coming at me wondering if I was trying to generate FUD. You know, there are people who have told me, look, if you are practicing the type of layered security that you should be practicing and, and what have you, then your stuff is not going to get into the public domain to start with. And that if something does get into the public domain, their view is, you know, it's, it's your own darn fault for not following, you know, due diligence. If you do end up with information on Google, chances are it's not because Google is such a great search engine. Granted, it's the market leader. But it's probably because you missed some sort of major step in the information security protection chain of events. So, I mean, to me, if you implement those proper data controls that, that you touched on and, you know, make sure you, you take encryption into account. Granted, there are many different encryption strategies to consider, but as long as you have one and are executing on it properly, chances are you're not going to end up, uh, you know, a Google victim, if you will. What Rob mentioned, though, the Google code search engine that uh, searchsecurity.com uh, published a tip on recently. That is a major concern. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Ed Scudis wrote about that for us, and uh, basically, Google Code Search is a searchable repository of, of open source code, and yeah. I think it's going to be a major problem for companies that, you know, in the short term, companies that make use of a lot of open source code because um, you never know uh, what kind of code is going to be. Um, searched and, uh, you know, combed over by attackers looking for vulnerabilities. Uh, honestly, I think the jury is still, still out on, on whether or not uh, that's going to be a major problem, and certainly it could be. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I also think that when we're talking about the threat of Google hacking in general, it really, you really have to look at the different tools individually. Um, you know, Google Code Search is a good example of something that, you know, is a genuine concern. Um, but one of the things that Tom Bowers, and he's the security consultant who gave a talk about Google hacking at the recent Secure World Conference, and that's where I wrote that first story from, uh, he mentioned another example as uh, Google Earth, that using Google Earth, you could do some surveillance of your competitors' plants. And for me, now, you know, see, if Bill, you look at... Bill, i got to jump in. Now, that sounds like fun to me. That sounds yeah. silly. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't take that at face value, can yeah, you? Yeah, because... No, you can't. Because, first of all, if you look at Google Earth, 
how often, you know, if you go over sites that you know of, is it ever fu fully up to date? No, I mean, I look, if I look, if I look at my, where I live through Google Earth, you know, there are five houses that aren't there that are there now. And, you know, and some people have made the point to me, and I think that they're right, that, that it's probably, not probably, it's a, it's a stretch to, you know, look at go something like Google Earth and well, it's, it's important to distinguish between Google Maps and Google Earth. Google Maps is the, the online web-based, you know, maps program that you can use to drive from point A to point B. And it'll give you pretty good, um, uh, a pretty good guide of how to, how to navigate the streets and such. Right. But you're not going to get a lot of detail on buildings. But right. Google Earth is the actual software application that you can download from Google and have on your client computer. And it will actually zoom in pretty closely on... Um, just about any building you can find. I know on the Today Show this week, Matt Lauer in his Where in the World is Matt Lauer uh, segment was uh, at the Boeing plant in uh, outside of Seattle in Washington State, and they were using Google Earth to show the Boeing facility. And you could zoom, they zoomed in right down to the roof to actually show how large the building is. So if people want to use Google Earth, there's no question that you can get some pretty high-resolution uh, photography, but at the same time, I still don't think it's necessarily, you know, uh, coveted information that you couldn't get somewhere else if you were really willing to get it. I can't even get it to work on my computer. <laughs> well, I think that says more about you, Rob. Than <laughs> Thanks a lot. That ends this edition of the Security Roundtable. You can check out our previous podcasts at our podcast archive at searchsecurity.com slash podcast. And as always, you can get the latest news and information at our news page at searchsecurity.com slash news. For Bill Brenner, Eric Perizzo, and the rest of the searchsecurity.com team, I'm Rob Westervelt. Have a great day.